What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 626 with my guest, Dr. Robert Waldinger. I am, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This here is the podcast I, uh, I host. I hope that's okay with you. I don't know. I don't know who this character is I'm doing, but uh, I think I need to get him back to the smoking lounge that he's uh, singing at the piano. How are you? The website for this show is metalpod.com. Maybe I'm a little giddy because uh, I got out of jury duty today. Oh, sweet mama. Oh, sweet mama. It was three days, four days, four days of them picking a jury from like, I don't know, 50 of us. And it, oh, the people that are going to have to serve on that case, there are, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but there are two plaintiffs and two defendants. And one of them is a corporation and it involves medical shit. (laughs) And they said it was going to be a six week a six-week trial with filled with technical medical jargon, and this is this is where I am aware of the two sides of my brain that are in constant conflict with each other. The one side that is like, "Do whatever the fuck you got to do to get out of this," and the other side is like, "You should be grateful." that you live in a fairly functioning democracy, this is a part of the price you pay to be in it, to live in it. You owe it to your fellow citizens to be of service. And so for four days, it was that back and forth. And, you know, the brain loves to come up with a way where you feel like you're being honest, but you can can also... The selfish part of your brain kind of tweaks it a little bit. So I was like, yeah, I'd be happy to serve. I mean, you know, if my shoulder my shoulder hold, holds up for it. I was supposed to get shoulder surgery December 21st. I got shitty insurance, even though I pay $1,400 a month. And they're, they denied it. And so I'm just waiting for the approval. You know, essentially what they do is they wear your doctor out. They wear the policyholder down. And so they initially deny everything, and then the doctor has to plead the case on why you why you need to repair the tear in your rotator cuff, why why you need to be lavished with that luxury. And so uh, I'm waiting, 
as I'm doing this jury duty to find out if it's going to be approved so that I can get out of this fucking jury duty with a valid reason instead of acting like a, well, I would not act like a, a, a nut job to get out of jury duty. I served on a jury 11 years ago, and uh, I have to say it, it, it was a proud six-day waste of my time. There's no other way to paint it. It was a civic case, a civil civil case, and it was a fishing expedition by a uh, unscrupulous lawyer just trying to cash in on someone's death. And uh, oh man, it did uh, it did not increase my view of uh, <laughs> of uh, wrongful the wrongful death uh, legal uh, legal teams. I'm sure some of them are out there and doing good work, but uh, boy, there's some there are some scumbags. But I'm not going to take I'm not going to take their inventory. That's not what this podcast is about. This is about emotional and mental honesty, right? But it did get me thinking. With all the people that want to get out of jury duty, there there have got to be some surefire ways. You know, because they they ask the same questions to everybody. Um, in fact, you know what? Let me. Uh, where's my phone? Let's ask Siri. Hey Siri, how can I get out of jury duty? Showing results for how can I get out of jury duty? According to legal experts, here are the recommended responses when asked the question: Do you think you can be a fair and impartial juror? Number one: As long as no one looks like Daddy. Number two, I've seen CSI. Let's do this. Number three, if I can listen to music during the boring parts. Number four, no, but I can talk 11 idiots into anything. Number five, be they guilty, I shall rain fire. Number six, like I said on Reddit, it depends which side is deep state. Number seven, I guess so, but hey, why do judges dress like it's graduation? Number eight, Absolutely. But if the case starts to feel like a witch hunt, I will have to recuse myself, as I am a practicing witch. Number 9, as myself, or a vessel of God's heavenly wrath. Number 10, if someone's lying, can I sound like I'm snoring? I think those all make sense. That That is some wisdom from the internet. <laughs> um, hey, I'm gonna, as uncomfortable as this is to ask, we could use some more Patreon sponsors and PayPal, uh, but I prefer when, when people are going to do a recurring monthly donation, they do it through Patreon because every once in a while I'll create you know bonus content or raffle off a cutting board that I made or, or, or something like that. So um, yeah, patreon.com slash mentalpod would, uh, would be greatly appreciated. Um, okay, well now we got that uncomfortable uh, groveling on my knees out of the, out of the way. Did I mention that the, the surgery has been approved? I don't know if I mentioned that and, and, and all the complaining. This is uh, from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Angel. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? She writes, it's not my fault bad things happen to me, but it is my fault if I choose to dwell in the negativity. I like that. I mean, it sounds like you're being a little harsh on yourself. Uh, uh, I hope there's some self-compassion in there if you do start dwelling on the on the negative. I heard somebody say in a support group one time, 
I can't help whether or not a bird lands on my head, but I can help whether or not I let it build a nest. And that stuck with me. I like that. I like that analogy. And I like birds. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Desiree. And she says, uh, I think that I developed an anxious attachment style in my last relationship. I dated someone with narcissistic traits, and he suffered from bipolar disorder. I myself suffer from depression, ADHD, and anxiety disorder. Our relationship was off and on, an emotional roller coaster ride. He'd love me and treat me nicely, and then he'd hate me and make me feel that I was too emotional, concerned with the wrong things, such as his behaviors that made me uncomfortable, or things he'd say that didn't align with the things he'd tell me previously uh, that related to relationships. Um... Yeah, those are that is also known as a red flag. Uh, he could put me in my place, be an asshole, and move on as if he didn't hurt my feelings. But uh, the second I told him about his negative attributes, he acted as if I betrayed him in some way. Uh, that to me, I have that underlined as I think that is the you know one of the hallmarks of narcissistic behavior. Uh, not narcissistic uh, personality disorder. I'm not a you know mental health professional. I can't uh, I can't diagnose that, but that is definitely uh, some narcissistic shit. Don't know if I was the problem or if I simply dated a narcissist that wanted to be loved without having to love me back. Our relationship turned me into this anxious, codependent crybaby. Uh, that's another word I, I underlined here is uh, it sounds like he probably called you a crybaby and now you're taking that that word on or if he didn't call you a crybaby, he insinuated that you were a crybaby. I mean, you said, you know, that he'd tell you that you were too emotional. Uh, that's usually a pretty red, pretty big red flag if somebody says that you're, you're too emotional. Um, not that it's never true, but that's usually somebody that that <laughs> what they really want to say is, I don't feel like dealing with the fact that I did something that you're feeling emotional about. Uh, did I ruin my relationship by wanting to work through our issues, spend quality time, wanting to be a priority by communicating? Question mark. I tried to communicate and get through to him frequently, and he felt that I was just nagging and trying to start conflict. Help me understand. Uh it sounds like it was not a good relationship. And, uh, you know, while I don't know what it is like to be around either of you from what you've described, uh, he sounds like a guy that uh, is emotionally um, unavailable. Yeah. You know, narcissistic partners have a way of making our baseline reasonable needs seem unreasonable. Um, for me, I know I'm in a good relationship when I feel listened to, when I express something that I feel that my feelings are being respected. And not that I expect a perfect, you know, a perfect reaction from that person, but an effort an effort to open their mind and take in what it is that I'm saying. And I'd like to think that I'm that same partner for them. I hope I am. I know I am. Uh, this is from the uh, the love survey filled out by Poopy Butt. I've been, wa- I've been wondering when Poopy Butt was going to contact us. And uh, do you think Poopy Butt's a guy or a girl? I think Poopy Butt's a girl. 
I think poopy butt is, that's a little, that might be just a little too um, soft of a name for the average guy to call himself. Share things you love. I love coffee in the morning or at any time, as a matter of fact. I love everything about it. The smell, cute mugs I get to use every day. The process and how you're forced into being patient just so you can sip and savor that soul elixir. That's a nice fucking sentence, poopy butt. Poopy butt, I think you spend a lot of time at the typewriter. I think you, I think you spend most of your life sipping, typing, and pooping. I love how my cat loves me and my family and the fact that he thinks he's a dog. I love how he has to sleep between my feet every night and how he lets me hold him and scratch his belly. I love my husband's supportive nature. I love playing games on my phone to wind down and shut off my brain for a bit. I love pie. Oh, poopy butt, I think I love you. I do not trust people that like cake more than pie. I know I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, so apologize. I apologize if I'm going to get on my dessert soapbox, but give me a hand. What the fuck is the matter with you for not loving a good fruit pie? I can understand if you don't like, you know, the banana cream, the, you know, the chocolate silk, but a good blueberry pie, boysenberry, oh, sour cherry. Come on. Pumpkin, I can understand you being on the fence. But you, poopy butt, you love apple, cherry, pecan, strawberry, strawberry rhubarb. Oh my God, strawberry rhubarb. That might be the best one. You got the sweet, you got the sour, you got the diabetes. Blackberry, gooseberry, banana cream, chocolate cream, pumpkin. Poopy butt put pumpkin in caps. I got to question that because I would put pumpkin down at the bottom of the pie list. The poopy butt, top shelf, sweet potato and pot pie. Look at you squeezing the savory in with the sweet to save space. And then finally, poopy butt writes, uh, I love a good sports game, tight competition. Watching a big game or series where it's a blowout is the worst. Poopy butt, I didn't ask for you to say things that you don't like. I asked you to say things that you love. And you you followed it to a T until the end. And then you shit yourself, poopy butt. I think that's why they call you poopy butt. How many times did I say poopy butt? 20? Gracie, you keeping track? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy, and I've been using BetterHelp for years. Uh, My therapist, Heidi, she really helps me. Well, she helps me in a lot of ways, but one of the things that that she has been helping me with lately is, um, you know, therapists and, and my therapist have always been good at helping me see the things that I'm struggling with that aren't, you know, quote unquote, right in my life, but she's helping me see what is right in my life. And because I think a lot of us forget to step back and go, hey, I'm doing okay. 
look where I am, you know, as opposed to a, a year ago. I'm out of this toxic relationship or I quit that job where I was being abused. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash mental to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. And make sure you include the uh, the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast. And, and get out there and and be the good version of you. Reach that uh, that potential. Do we ever really fully reach our dep- potential? I don't know. I don't. I don't know if we ever do. But isn't uh, striving for it? Isn't that what uh, the smart people say? That we should. Uh, it's about the journey and not about the traffic. I might be getting that that uh, saying mixed up. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Uh, and then one more uh, survey before we get to the interview with Dr. Waldinger. Uh, this is uh, an awful moment filled out by Checks Mix Girl. And she writes, Hello, Paul. I've struggled. Hello. I have struggled my whole life with self-care. I rarely spent money on myself because I did not think I deserved it. I always felt guilty if I bought something I wanted. A tube of toothpaste at the supermarket, no problem. Bespoke, organic toothpaste made by monks in the Himalayas? Forget it. I didn't deserve it. I always wanted to play the drums. I have no background in music, have no rhythm, can't dance, can't sing. This was just something I wanted to do for myself. I put this off for 20 years because I did not want to spend the money on something so frivolous. I also was afraid the teacher would laugh at me, say I'm hopeless and it would be impossible to teach me. Well, I finally took the plunge and started taking lessons. My teacher is wonderful. He is kind supportive, and incredibly patient. I love these lessons so much. And I told my sister about the lessons, how happy it made me, and that my my teacher was so nice to me. My sister paused for a moment and said, well, he's nice to you because you're paying him. 
my consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this <laughs> I am here with Dr. Robert Waldinger uh, You are a psychiatrist, you're a professor at uh, McLean Hospital at Harvard? Harvard Medical School. Harvard Medical School. And actually Massachusetts General Hospital. Okay. Uh, having trouble making ends meet? You got to do them both? I got to do them both. Yeah. Well, I trained at McLean Hospital, but now gotcha. I work at Massachusetts General. Uh, I'm really glad that we were able to uh, find a time to get you in here. You're uh, in from out of town briefly, so thank you for coming by. Uh, Dr. Waldinger has a TED Talk that has gotten over 43 million views. Yeah. And it's about, well, uh, tell the folks what it's about. I will. Um, It's about our 85-year-long study of the same people and how they go through their lives and what helps them thrive? What keeps them happy? And because the TED Talk resonated with so many people, we decided to to do a deeper dive and put what we know about the science of relationships into this book that we're just publishing. And it's called The Good Life? It's called The Good Life. And it will be out by the time this uh, episode gets released. And so I imagine people can find it wherever they get their books. January 10th. And it'll be everywhere, we hope. Uh, Your TED Talk is so important. And a lot of the information I don't think is is stuff that is new to a lot of people. But he's nodding his head vigorously. But the package that you present it in, and I think also having it presented by someone uh, and a group of people who are doing scientific research, uh, I think is is so important. Let's talk uh, about the the study. Let's get into the, the nitty gritty uh, details of it. Sure. As far as we know, it's the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. It started in 1938, and it's followed the same people. It's gone back to them over and over again, asking more questions, taking more measurements, followed people all the way from the time they were teenagers all the way into old age. So about 40 of our original 724 people are still living, and those people are now in their late 90s or early 100s. And they were college students at Harvard when it started? About a third of them were college students at Harvard, 19-year-olds. And the other two-thirds were from Boston's poorest neighborhoods and their most troubled families. They started out in a study of juvenile delinquency and how some children who were born, say, with two strikes against them, managed to stay on 
on a healthy track and develop well and did not get into trouble. Um, be- before we pick up on that uh, thread there, why was why was the study originally just men or, or just males? Because in, in, in today's age, that's like so what? It's so it's so politically incorrect. So the Harvard study is all white men from Harvard, and it's supposed to be a study of normal adult development. Right. I mean, come on. Right. But at that time, everybody thought, you know, you study men, that's what's most important. Um, of course, now we understand that, that uh, we need much more diversity. So our study is over half women now. We brought in the wives. We brought in all the children, more than half of whom are female. And when did that begin? When did you, the study begin uh, incorporating? When I started, teams? I'm the fourth director, and I started 20 years ago in 2002. Right. Okay. Um, and how about diversity of ethnicity, uh, gender, sexuality? Is that something that has also been incorporated? Well, the diversity of ethnicity is really mostly people of Eastern European and Middle Eastern or origin. A lot of them were in the study. They were over half of the families from the inner city group were immigrant families. Uh, but we don't have African Americans. We don't have Latinos. Uh, we don't have people who we now think of as uh, more what our population looks like in the United States. The reason is that the city of Boston in 1938 was 97 percent white. So and now you, it's 96. And now it's oh boy. Uh, fortunately, there are many, many more. Ethnic groups and racial groups. Uh, we're a we're a much more multicolored city, and so uh, they are incorporated now into uh, yes. all ethnicities. Well, are incorporated. not not in our study. What we the reason why we've thought often we should bring in you know other ethnicities, mm-hmm. but the what's unique about our study is that we have this background of information. So if we brought in a group of people now in their 50s, we wouldn't have all the years of data on them that we have on our original people and on these original families. I see. So you're not starting with new people now. You're just finishing up all the ones you started. I got you. I got you. Because when you said we don't have any African Americans, I was like, this interview might be over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and you know, but but I think you're raising such an important point, which is that. We are absolutely committed to carrying this work forward and to helping people do similar studies in more diverse groups. So our job is to pass the baton and have other researchers study more diverse groups. Gotcha. The other thing, and I I just think it's worth mentioning, is that we only present in, in the TED Talk that I gave and also in this new book, we only present research findings that have been found in other ethnic groups as well. So they're not just specific to... I see. So you incorporate data outside of your studies Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Gotcha. Um, so let's talk about some of that that data. Yeah. What are, what are the patterns that you began seeing? 
Some of the patterns were not a surprise. We found that the people who took care of their health, took care of their bodies, lived longer, they stayed healthier while they were alive, and they were happier. Now, that wasn't the surprise. But when we found that people who lived longer had warmer relationships and more connections with other people, that surprised us. In fact, it was such a surprise that we didn't believe it until other research groups began to find the same thing. Because the question was, how could the quality of your relationships with other people get into your body? How could it predict whether or not you're likely to get coronary artery Ah. disease or, you know, arthritis? Um, And so we've been spending the last 10 years studying that, studying how this actually works. Talk about the, one of the things I really like in your TED Talk is you talk about the survey of millennials. Uh, and, and I think this really holds for any generation, even before it. When I think of when I was in my 20s, if somebody had interviewed me and I'd been really honest, what are the two things I want the most? It would be money and power, right. uh, fame, recognition. Right. Uh, talk about the, the millennial study. Right. So the the survey of millennials asked people, you know, so they're in their 20s and it mm-hmm. said, what do you think your major life goals need to be for you to have a good life? And over 80% said that they needed to get rich. And over 50% said they needed to become famous. And this is completely counter to what science tells us. When and we when we measure this, we find out that it's not true that being rich and being famous make right. you happy. Uh, and, and it was phrased as, what do you think you need in your life rather than what do you think you need to make yourself happy? No, it was what do you think you need to, to, to make yourself happy and to have a good life. I got you. Because I think, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that that we often just assume happiness is going to be a result of, of of this. Sorry, my dogs are making so much noise. Do you ever ask people, you know, let's put money and fame aside and then get into questions about what do you think you need to improve the quality of your life? You know, get rid of the two big elephants in the room. Um, what do you find are the three through whatever, through 10. The UN actually does a world happiness report every year, and they ask this question all over the world. And what people say is they need social support. They need to be able to trust their neighbors. They need to be able to trust their government. They need access to health care. They need to be able to make the big decisions in their lives. They need the freedom to do that, right? So we know from all over the world, all ages and ethnicities, we know that there are certain things that come up all the time. Wealth actually isn't one of them. Certainly having enough food, clothing, shelter, yes. But once you get beyond that, once you get your basic needs met, your happiness doesn't really go up when you make more money. And is Denmark still crushing it? <laughs> well, it is. But, you know, Scandinavia also has a fair amount of loneliness. So yeah. it's both. They've got 
life satisfaction, partly because there's a culture of decency. There's a culture of people respecting each other's and living wages and and living wages exactly. And yes, things are more expensive, but there's workers a, are better taken care of. They have more protections. There's a sense of a safety net. Yeah, there's a wonderful safety net there, and so. You know, like when during COVID, people lined up and got their vaccinations. They just did that because they thought that it was important for other people that they protect themselves. So it's a it's a society that says part of my mission in life is to take care of my community. Mm-hmm. In this country, in the United States, there's a whole lot of rugged individualism that says me and mine and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and skepticism. And skepticism. Certainly, which is, has been monetized uh, in, the, in the media by, I think, by both sides. Yeah. Tell people what they think they want to hear. You tune to your channel and you hear the echo chamber. And it's, and it's hard to find um, sources that don't seem to have an agenda, that aren't right. s- seeming to to feed their bottom line because they know they're going to get ratings right right which which actually makes me so unhappy because what the science tells us and what my passion is is to convey this message that what we really need to do is connect with each other find common ground find common ground that's what we need to do uh, this this division and finding enemies in each other is is just the wrong thing for yes. our health and well being. I tried posting something on Facebook. I don't know. It was probably ten years ago. In that vein of hey, let's have a you know a civil discussion. You know, let's be vulnerable about what we share. Let's own our side of yeah. the problem yeah not a single person did it and everybody attacked each other really? from the first oh. comment on down oh. and that's kind of when i said uh yeah i'm i'm done talking about yeah i mean i post comedy on on facebook satire that i that i write but that is about it because it it's depressing and yeah. I, and i imagine yeah. you are finding uh studies around social media or even just the clients that you you talk to about the variety of mental health effects that social media can can have what are your th- thoughts and yeah. findings on that we know a little bit about that so the research uh is still young like there needs to be more of it but there's some science that tells us that it's how we use social media and how we use our screens that matters so If we use social media actively, so if you use it to reach out and connect with people, that's actually a positive thing. People find it energizing. It increases their mental health, their well-being. If we use screens and social media passively, so if we simply watch, scroll through other people's Instagram feeds, That's a recipe for lower self-esteem, more mm-hmm. depression. More I don't anxiety. have enough followers. Exactly. Or other people are having a better life. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is we all curate our lives for each other. We put up our happiest, most beautiful photos. And even though we all kind of know that that's not the whole story, it can leave us feeling like, wait, everybody else has a great life. Everybody else has it figured out. And I'm the only one who doesn't, which just isn't the truth. Yeah. I think one of the things that 
is so important is to think when whenever we take any kind of action is to pull back and say, what is my intent here? Yes. What is my purpose? Talk about the importance of purpose and meaning in people's lives, people that integrate it and people that don't integrate it. Yeah. It turns out to matter a lot that people who know why they get up in the morning um, have more energy in their lives. They feel better. They report feeling more satisfied with life. And in some studies, they live longer. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to sit there and say, my grand purpose is X, Mm -hmm. Y, or Z. It just means knowing what you want to do every day. Uh, It might mean raising kids. It might mean taking care of your dogs. It might mean running a company. It could mean any number of things. But but that feeling of, I want these things to be there in the world, and that's important to me. And so that's why I get up today. That's that sense that all of us want to have. How do you distinguish, uh, and I know it's not your job to distinguish between these things, but a what is a healthy sense of purpose and what is an unhealthy or perhaps even addictive sense of purpose? Or well, I should say, I, what, now what is me, driving someone's yeah. behavior? Well, let me fall back on my Zen practice. Because mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the, the, the highest purpose in Buddhism is to relieve suffering, is to... Self-suffering, suffering around us? All, all of it. So save all beings is what we talk about. And it's not just all beings except one, except me. It's all beings, meaning taking care of oneself and trying to take care of other people. Because there's so much suffering in the world that to to make any contribution to relieving some of that suffering is considered the most noble purpose. And I do think that people who say, you know, I'm going to just make more money for myself uh, so I can just buy more stuff, that those people are less satisfied than the people who find themselves invested in things that take care of others. There's There's a quote from the Dalai Lama that I love. He said, the wise, selfish person takes care of other people. Because he basically was saying what goes around comes around. That if you're really smart, you'll realize that taking care of other people comes back to benefit you. I I do believe that. And that's the beauty, uh, in my opinion, of support groups is we originally go there for help. We stay to keep getting help, but also we begin then helping. And we find that that becomes a big part of the help. Exactly. That we get is the feeling of meaning and purpose. Exactly. And I found it to be the cheapest muscle relaxer that, mm. yeah. that I've ever taken. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've ever left a support group meeting and not had lower blood pressure, uh, not had a better sense of connection, and not had a clearer view on my quote-unquote problems. Yes. You know, what you're describing is what we're finding is the way that relationships help us. So the you remember I said we, we couldn't figure out how do relationships get into your body and and you know improve your health. Right. We we think it's about just what you're describing with the support group. That it's a stress reliever. Relationships when they're good 
help us manage stress and help us calm down. You know, we get into fight or flight mode when something happens, when something challenges us. And that's okay. That's actually good. But we're meant to go back to baseline. People who are isolated, lonely, don't have anyone to talk to, stay, we think, in a kind of chronic fight or flight mode where they've got more chronic inflammation in their bodies, chronic stress, higher levels of stress hormones that gradually break down the body. So what we think happens is that when you go to a support group or you have somebody in your life who you can call at the end of a stressful day, like you can literally feel your body calm down. And we think that's how it works. Talk about um, the different chemicals that corrode our body um, through unhealthy coping mechanisms and, and the ones that help us. I mean, how does it work on a cellular level? We don't fully understand that. I mean, we know some of the big ticket items. So cortisol is a, uh, a steroid hormone that we all produce. And we know that we secrete more of it into our bloodstream when we're stressed. That's a good thing because it, it prepares us to fight or flee. Mm-hmm. But cortisone then also chronically wears away at the body. Similarly, inflammation, inflammatory reactions where white blood cells are in attack mode because they feel like they're going to have to face a threat. Those break down the body. Beyond that, there are quite a number of other you know, neurotransmitters. There are other hormones, mm-hmm. other chemicals operating, but it's a pretty complex set of systems, as you can imagine, because yeah. the human body is so yeah. complicated. What did uh, I saw from your, your TED Talk that you also took brain scans. What did that reveal? So the brain scans... W- reveal that people's brains are better connected. The regions of the brain are better connected when they're viewing positive pictures, when there's positive emotion than compared with when there's negative emotion. So we put people in the scanner and showed them, you know, scary or angry pictures. Mm -hmm. And then we showed them beautiful, calming pictures. Mm -hmm. And the brain lit up very differently depending on which kind of pictures they were viewing. So we know... Hold on one second. I've got a a dog. Okay. He was just preparing his his spot to lay down. Yeah, yeah. There we go. He's all settled now. Uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. So what we found was that the way the, the regions of the brain are connected varies if we're looking at positive things, if we're feeling positive emotions compared with negative, Um, that our brains are just better connected, better wired when there's positivity happening in our lives. So the the brain is more efficient uh, when it's it's connected? The executive function is able to override the fight or flight if we get triggered by something? What, What Help me understand what the better connection, how that plays out. You're asking a deeper question and science is still working on that. Mm -hmm. So we see the differences in connection, but to really chart, okay, exactly what does this mean and how does it work? That science is still working on. What did you find uh, about childhood trauma? We found that childhood matters a lot. 
that how people are treated in childhood and the warmth of their connections with parents matter a lot for how they are in relationships as adults. So we found a connection between having warmer relationships with your parents as a kid and having a warmer relationship with your spouse in your 80s. I mean, a 60-year span, it's almost unheard of to find that kind of statistical connection over time because so many other things happen to us in our lives. But the influence of childhood is so powerful that it reaches all, all the way across decades and into old age. And what did you find with uh, uh, the people who had difficult childhoods? What I imagine they, um, you saw a variety of qualities of life at the at the end of their yes. lives. What were some of those varieties, and what were some of the things that seemed to indicate that they were influenced by? Yes. So we have quite a few stories in the book, real stories of our real participants. We disguise the names Mm -hmm. to keep them private. But we traced, for example, all through the book, our happiest man and one of our least happy men. That very unhappy man had a very difficult childhood. He lost his mother young to cancer, um, had a lot of time, too much time on his own, never felt accepted by other kids, gradually never felt he belonged in college, was so bright, had a great career in his profession. Was this one of the Harvard kids? Yeah, one of the Harvard kids. Had all the advantages, right? But never felt good about his relationships. Had two unhappy marriages, not just the first one, but then the second one, very unhappy. And he ended up very unhappy and sick, um, and feeling very alone. What was his relationship to work, and did he ever get any kind of help? His relationship to work was one of throwing himself into it because that was the place he got rewards. That was where people would pat him on the back, and relationships weren't easy for him. Um, and... I'm sorry, there was a second part to it. The, um, what what was his relationship to work, and um, uh, did he ever try to get any help oh, for his yes. emotional or mental issues, or was he even aware of them? He was aware of his unhappiness. He felt that a lot of it was everybody else's problem, not primarily his, so he mm-hmm. wasn't so likely to go to you know, a counselor and say, I'd like to understand what I'm doing that's causing me problems. He wouldn't say that. But he did go for couples therapy with his second wife. And it was difficult there. They didn't they weren't able to make much headway. They weren't able to make the relationship go more smoothly. It sounds like the kind of classic example where where someone experiences so many painful human interactions early in their life that a part of their heart shuts and they aren't even aware that it's shut. It's it's their normal. That's exactly right. If you think about it, we're all raised in a family and that seems like the way it is. That's what families are. And it's only when we get out of our family and can look back and see other families that we say, oh, 
other families work differently. Oh, the first time you spend Thanksgiving at a healthy family's house? Yeah, yeah. What a fucking shocker. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, wait, it didn't have to work this way. It could have been really different, right? right? And sometimes, like, one of my kids came home from college and said, Dad, we had a really boring childhood. And I said, thank you very much. Because <laughs> he met some kids at college who'd had really chaotic, crazy yeah. upbringings. Yeah. That's interesting, too, that he, he categorized it as boring. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what were some of the other divergent paths that you saw uh, troubled kids yeah. take and what influenced those well, one of one of our uh, inner city boys turned out to be the Boston Strangler. What? Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. I don't know if you can tell me too much about this. I may I start a podcast just about this. I can't tell you. Tell, much. tell me everything that you can. <laughs> I can't really tell you. I can't really tell you much. Just that he was one of the most troubled kids. Uh, although he had a veneer, a surface presentation of, you know, trying to be okay. And some people thought he was okay, but... Um, was he charming? Yes, he had a charming quality, as many of these serial killers do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so and usually intelligent. And he was intelligent and resourceful. Um, it just all turned for the wrong purposes. Yeah. Um, but And we had... We had other people who who ended up leading very isolated lives, who never, you know, one man spent his whole life living in a trailer, in a trailer park in rural Montana. Even though he'd married and he'd had kids, he just never saw his kids. He, He just didn't connect with people. And a lot of it had to do with the difficulties he'd faced in childhood. Now, Having said all this, I want to say that many of our people with difficult childhoods have lives that turn around, and often it's because they have better experiences as they grow up. They have a mentor, somebody who's a teacher or a coach who takes an interest in them, or they have a spouse. They, they find a partner who's good to them and shows them a model of relationships and family that's a healthier model. So it's not that your childhood is your destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important. Right. And and was it that they were, in general, that they were seekers who hadn't given up on trusting people or they were right place, right time? I bet you it's some of both. I think some people were seekers. Uh, maybe because they'd had a glimmer somewhere of what could be better. And some people were lucky. Some, you know, one of the things we know is that some kids just turn out to be good at recruiting mentors for for whatever reason, their personalities, their personal appeal ends up drawing adults to them. And those kids often end up doing better because they'll get an adult who takes an interest. And I think... A sensitive adult can sense a wound in a kid that still has a little light in his eyes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you see these relationships with teachers or coaches that are just transforming. Man, when I read stories about the teacher that, you know, gave the kid hope that there was 
human kindness out there and helped funnel their passion and their energy into something that they wind up making a living at and doing well. It's just, it's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's why many people continue to teach, even Mm. though our teachers are so poorly paid and not... not And often over, just completely over. And there's a lot of horrible ones out there that need to fucking retire because they've lost their patience two decades ago. But there are so many, so many great ones. I think one teacher that... um, she was a nun. And, you know, the stereotype of the nun is they beat you. And I certainly experienced nuns that did that. But uh, I was an eighth grader and this nun, Sister Therese, was just the kindest. Mm. She really took an interest in the music the kids liked, even though she didn't really get it. Yeah. And and there was just a sense of this woman really wanted to see us for who we were yeah. and feed us. Yeah, and yeah. that was such a it, – it's in moments like that, even though I wouldn't have called it at the time, but I felt the presence of a higher power, yeah. God, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. And it goes back to what you talked about in your presentation, love, yeah, caring, yeah, community. Yeah. You know, and what you said about feeling that, that – that none could see you. That's what people really yearn for, this sense that somebody gets me, somebody sees me for who I am. Yeah. When I you see the typical example of the, you know, the CEO, usually a male, who is telling himself that he's working 90-hour work weeks for his family, uh, and you know he can't even name who his children's best friends are um i i just wish somebody would pull them aside and say find out what your kids hobbies are take the day off and take them you know is it fishing surprise them yeah take them fishing one day that'll change their life yeah when our original guys were in their 80s we asked them what do you regret the most as you look back on your life, and what are you proudest of? And what they regretted the most was, many of them said, I wish I hadn't spent so much time at work, and I wish I had spent more time with the people I cared about. Yeah. You never hear somebody say, I wished I'd worked a longer work week. (laughs) Exactly. And, And what they were proudest of wasn't, oh, you know, I made this amount of money, or I won this award. It was always something about relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I was a good spouse. I raised good kids. I was a good mentor at work. Um, it was always about their relationships with other people. So let's say you get a, a patient coming in um, who is a workaholic, whether self-identified or not. Um, Let's say they have a lot of anxiety. Um, as a psychiatrist, you have the ability to prescribe meds. Um, what What is the flow chart of, and obviously there's a lot more factors than that, but give me kind of a typical example of something, someone coming in where you decide, let's medicate right away or let's get some, you know, talk therapy going. What a great question. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a hard thing to decide, but generally 
first of all, if somebody's in danger, so let's say someone comes in and they're really depressed and they can't care for themselves, that they're so distracted they might walk out in front of a truck or they say they want to die, they want to kill mm -hmm. themselves, then if we don't need to put them in a hospital to keep them safe, then I want to start medication as soon as possible because they need relief quickly. If somebody comes in with milder depression, which is what most people have mm -hmm. who come to me, I say, let's spend a few sessions just talking about your life and about what's on your mind. And let's see how you feel after that. Many times, just the act of talking after two, three, four sessions will make people feel so much better, so much relieved that they don't feel they need medication. And I don't feel they need medication. Some people definitely need medication, and so we use it. Uh, how, how often do you, get, do you get somebody that comes in that doesn't struggle with negative self-talk? Almost never. <laughs> Everybody I know struggles with negative self-talk. Actually, I do, right? Talk and, about that. Yeah. Talk well, about the, the things that you tell yourself. Oh, I I might go away from our conversation right now and say, "Oh, did I say the right things or, you know, was it boring?" I might I might have all these doubts, right? Yeah. And, you know, I shouldn't have said this or right? And um sometimes I will look at somebody's Instagram feed and say, "Oh, wait, I'm not having that kind of great life," right? So the comparison thing happens to me. Um I think that my Zen practice, my meditation practice, has been an enormous help in letting me kind of see this more clearly and, and see pull it. Pull back from it. And, and pull back from it and see it quicker. So it still comes up for me. But like if I, if I go away from, from our talk tonight and worry that I've said the wrong thing, I can probably put it away in 15, 30 seconds, right? Yeah. Whereas before, I might have ruminated about it the rest of the night. Yeah, it's like if if you don't have some type of practice to be able to pull back, uh, you, you are in court without a defense attorney. Yeah, yeah. You know, and one of the things that that's worth thinking about is that often we would never treat anyone else the way we treat ourselves. Never. You know, in terms of this negative self-talk and yeah. stuff. So, uh, so I think that, that some kind of practice that helps us decrease the negative self-talk is so healing. It's one of the things I, that I love about meditation is it introduces you to what you're obsessing on, especially if you if you have a oh, yeah. mantra that you're trying to keep in mind and you find yourself wandering from it and going, oh, I, that, you know, that episode needs to get more downloads. If that doesn't happen, you know, the advertising, blah, 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 blah. And after that comes into my head for the sixth time in four minutes, I'm like, well, maybe when I'm done meditating, I need to address this. Is this something that I need to surrender that it is what it is? Is this something I can take steps to try to fix or alleviate or, or minimize? That to me is where meditation has been most helpful. Is it, you know, I, it gives me a, a, <laughs> A tandem bike ride with my crazy. Yes, yes. And me too. Me too. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the great 
um, healers, because our minds are so good at anticipating problems, but the downside of that is we make up all kinds of stuff that yeah. just isn't true. Is that uh, an evolutionary vestige of keeping us safe, the finding the negative? We think so. I mean, of course, it's hard to prove, right. but we think that we got really good at scanning the horizon for threats and emphasizing the negative. So we do know that younger adults prioritize what's negative. I mean, you know, you get you get 10 pieces of positive feedback and they roll off your back, but one piece of negative mm-hmm. feedback and oh, you think about it for days or weeks or years sometimes, yeah. right? So we think that is a part of how our minds developed to be really sensitive to threat. But, it, of course, it's terrible because it makes us suffer for no reason. Um, what we do find is that as people get older, they start emphasizing the positive and not so much the negative, that our brains switch the bias. And and why do you think that is? Just because they have less time? That seems to be a big factor, that – Once we get to be in our 40s and then later, we get this dawning awareness that this mortality stuff is real Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that life really is short. And yeah, we know it intellectually when we're younger, but we really get it in a different way. We feel it, I think. We feel it. We feel it. And what that does, rather than making us more depressed, it seems to make us start prioritizing our own well-being more. So we start, and you can see this when you do surveys of people, people like stop doing things just because they feel obligated. They start letting the obligations go. They stop, you know, going to the meetings that they don't really enjoy anymore. They stop seeing those people who they feel obliged to see, but they they haven't enjoyed in years. Um, and as a result, they get happier. You start to listen to your intuition. Yes. Much more. Being a friend with your body is, I think, one of those greatest acts of self-care that that so many of us have an adversarial relationship with our bodies. And especially if, if we grew up in an enmeshed household where we don't understand boundaries and we just assume I have to be whoever this person needs me to be. Mm. The day that we begin to say, I get a stomachache around this person. I'm going to cancel. Mm-hmm. It can change your fucking life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That that when we can just step away from relationships that are like that, that deplete our energy, that make us feel bad, um, we can do that. Now, that said, it's also really important to work out the conflicts with people who are important to you, right? right. Not to walk away from every Every relationship where there's a disagreement. Right. And how do you find, um, are you, can you put into words um, what that middle ground is like in a relationship where it could go either way? Yeah. I suppose the first thing is simply to see what's possible, to try, particularly if the relationship is important, um, to try ways of making it better and ask the person to join you in trying to make it better. And if it doesn't work and you can step away, then you step away. It doesn't have to be never seeing the person again, but it may mean not spending as much time. And what would be some things that 
some ways that you would communicate to this person in a diplomatic way that isn't apologetic about you taking care of yourself and and stepping stepping away because i think a lot of people struggle because they don't know how to put it into into words they know what they should be doing to take care of themselves but it's so terrifying because they feel like they're going to hurt the other person's feelings they're going to come across as an asshole yeah you know it's hard but i think that the that the best rule of thumb is to get clear about what you want and say what you want so you you might say when when we have this kind of conversation i go away feeling worse not you make me feel worse just i go away feeling worse so i'm going to have less of these conversations with you maybe we'll eventually be able to find a way to have conversations where i don't feel bad so you don't assign blame you, don't you assign just blame. express your feelings you say best your feelings and you express you, you don't say you're doing anything to me you just say when this happens th- when this happens this is where i, I am way. and right. so i'm not gonna spend as much time doing this <laughs> talk about the best success stories from the kids who had the tough childhood. Yeah. What what worked for them? Or even people who yeah. had good childhoods. Well, we had people whose parents were alcoholic, uh, whose, you know, fathers abandoned the family, just walked out one night and never came back. Of course you did. It was Boston. Yeah. <laughs> and we had, you know, uh, we had families with like, six kids where suddenly the mother was left alone with six kids and no money and everybody had to drop out of school and go to work. And many of those kids were success stories. They made good lives for themselves, good families, had good jobs. Some got educated. Um, And many of them thrived because they made good communities. So Finding a partner, uh, staying close to family, uh, staying close to reliable friends and making new friends, um, having people over to the house. A lot of a lot of our happiest couples were like the ones who uh, did the most socially uh, and and felt very connected to a community of people who they cared about and who cared about them. Talk about um, if if it was in there uh, altruism. Talk about altruism. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, if you found it in your study oh, and we, its we, effect, we totally found it in our study. We found that many people, particularly as they got older, started caring about doing good in the world. Um, one of the things that happens, particularly in middle age, as we get that realization about mortality, we say, okay, what do I want to continue in the world because I was here? What do I want to make happen? And that's where altruism comes in, Mm -hmm. where it says, I'm going to really support this cause because it matters to me. And it's not about me, and it doesn't directly benefit me, but it matters. Um, Those kinds of things come up more in mid and later life and they make people much happier. 
um, than the people who don't have any of that in their lives. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I The reason I gave that TED Talk in 2015 was because I'd been publishing papers in scientific journals that nobody reads. I've been spending millions of dollars of taxpayer money uh, to, to find these scientific facts, okay? And then I said, I really, I know stuff now from my research that people could use. And so I dipped a toe in the water, gave a TED Talk. And when a lot of people watch that TED Talk, I said, okay, I really want to do more of this. And so my passion right now is talking to people like you who have people who want to listen to them so that I can get this message out because I care so much about the message of this book about the power of human connection. That's my, I don't know if I'd call it altruistic. It's certainly my passion yeah. at this point in my it life. It comes through. You know, you're, uh, I'm not surprised that that video got 43 million views. <laughs> um, there's, there's something very comforting. You also have a very comforting kind of uh, vibe hmm. about you, hmm. which people do not automatically think when they think Harvard Harvard no. psychiatrist. Yeah, right, right. I have to say, if there was a lineup of 50 people, you would be number 50 I would choose to be a Harvard, psychiatrist, a Harvard psychiatrist, which is my issue, not, you know. Right, right, right. Well, I've I've needed to, like, my Zen practice helps. My, my relationship with my wife and my kids help keep me grounded, right? When, you know, it would be easy to get all lost in distinctions and who's got how much prestige and all that mm-hmm. stuff that's really meaningless ultimately. But I think there, there are ways that, that I try very hard to keep grounded. And uh, my spiritual practice is one of them and my relationships is the other big one. Do you ever, uh, and forgive me if this is insulting to, uh, to Harvard, but do <laughs> you, you, won't, you won't insult me. <laughs> do you ever think about your physical proximity to some of the monsters that get cranked out of Harvard Business School with mm. with just uh, uh, such a, you know, I think of, of, you know, people like the guy that started Uber, who just seemed like everybody was just a pawn on his chessboard. Yeah. And yeah. I know that's a bit of a stereotype about Ivy League yeah. business graduates but yeah. there's also a reason why some stereotypes exist and um i i just yeah. uh you know i hear tidbits here and there about this person said this their approach to business and making money and overcoming obstacles and it um it saddens me and yeah. angers me yeah yeah well, I know that's an uncomfortable question no, to, to, no, but, to throw but to you. But. Look, I'll speak to it because, well, first of all, I, I do have some contact with Harvard Business School. And you're right. There are people in every part of Harvard, every Ivy League, every part of the world who are just jerks and very self-absorbed and, and only out for themselves. And there's some absolutely wonderful people at Harvard Business School, lots of them, actually, which is good. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. You know, people really wanting to go out into the business world and make things of value and and treat people with dignity. There really are people like yeah. that. I believe that. Um, and so, um, but I think that, you know, unfortunately, every time I see one of the 
really divisive politicians that trained at Harvard or Yale or one of the other Ivy Leagues, I go, oh, really? Yeah. Can't you see beyond that? Um, you know, and so I have my pet peeves, you know, uh, but this is, you know, Zen helps me see that, look, this is just the universe unfolding as it unfolds there. Yeah. The universe unfolds in the form of jerks and it unfolds in the form of Mother Teresa's and Dalai Lama's, and, yeah. you know. You know, the other thing I, I do when those thoughts come up is I say, I probably spot something in them that I don't like about myself. What might it be? Totally, totally. I so agree with that. You know, there's this African proverb, you may know, it says, when you point one finger, there are three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Often, when I'm most angry at certain people, it's because there's something in me that that's similar. Now, do you think you would have gotten to that place without your uh, meditation practice? Meditation helps also being in psychotherapy helps. I, I'm a talk psych- therapy, talk therapy. I'm a trained psychoanalyst. So I had to have my own psychoanalysis. Thank goodness. Cause I learned a lot about myself. Right. And I think the combination of being in talk therapy and meditation has helped me become more accepting of my own messy parts, the parts that I'm not so proud of. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is coming up in my meditation. Right. What was the hardest part of your, what was the hardest thing to accept about yourself? Something that you're like, I'm going to have this in me the rest of my life. I, I better learn to yeah. live with it. The things, okay, so I have certain things that I, I have trouble being angry. And so, and then I realized, oh my God, of course I get angry. I just do all kinds of crazy things with it instead of just recognizing it and right. trying to be more skillful. Um, I can be envious and I'm ashamed of that. Um, but boy, the more I accept it and I say, oh yeah, here it is again. I'm, I'm feeling envious of this person. The less I suffer and the less I make other people suffer. Yeah. So what I find is that though, if I can get to more acceptance of the yucky parts of me, I do less harm in the world. Yeah. I love it. Mm. So such a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I know your, your book is going to, going to crush it. And uh, I hope so. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming by and spending time with us. Um, Where can people find you? Speaking of social media, if they want to know more about you or check out your book. uh, I mean, we'll put them in the show notes for this episode, but if you just want to say them. Yeah, so I'm I'm on LinkedIn and um, you can always go to our study website, adult development study, all one word, dot O-R-G. I'm a Zen teacher, uh, newtonzen.org, and I'm also on Insight Timer. Awesome. And Waldinger is spelled W-A-L-D-I-N-G-E-R. And thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Truly my pleasure. So nice. So nice chatting to him. I always feel so flattered when uh, smarty pants people come on on the podcast. Uh, When I first started doing this podcast 11 years ago, I was convinced that mental health professionals were going to come marching down my street with torches saying, what are you doing talking about mental health? You don't know anything. But they've been so nice and supportive. And uh, 
just uh, makes me feel so good to feel welcomed uh, by the people <laughs> that really know what they're talking about. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's, uh, let's read some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Sally. And uh, she writes uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? She writes, you suck at being a mom. Other moms manage to work a full-time job and participate in all of their kids' extracurricular activities, keep up with the housework, etc. Why can't you? You're a terrible friend. You don't reach out enough. You don't make enough time for your friends. You aren't good enough for your partner. He's too good of a person for you, and he will eventually realize this and leave. People don't like you. They avoid you. You are selfish for having a hobby. You can barely keep up as it is, and you have a hobby. You need to stop spending time on this hobby and dedicate that time to your children and friends. Man, that's some mean shit going on there. You know, the, 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 it's like if that voice in our head read, read it to us or said it to us, like in the tone of voice that I just read it, it would be obvious that we were being mean to ourselves. But I don't know about you guys, but the mean voice in my head is more like, it's not really sure if I'm a terrible person. Oh, you might be a terrible person. You, you might be lazy. <laughs> Just enough to, just enough to sow the seeds of my own emotional and mental self-destruction. It doesn't want to get its hands dirty, but it wants to get the ball rolling. Uh, this is from the "What Has Helped You" survey, and this is filled out by Winter Laurel, uh, and that is uh, that is not meant to be confused with Winter Iani. Was that for a 2018 reference? Uh, what were and are your issues and struggles? Depression, anxiety, feeling overwhelmed by the world and what I'm supposed to do with my life. Socially awkward, self-hatred, emotional eating, getting older, hating my body, and I'm sure I'll think of more awful things about myself. What has helped you deal with them? I tried so many different therapists antidepressants. I hate them and they did weird things to my heart rate, which made me completely unwilling to fuck around with them. And just sucking it up, trying to make myself change and nothing ever worked until I found the right therapist who figured out that my real problem was ignoring the fundamentals. Rather than take small steps or take things one step at a time, I was like the kid that always has to take the, uh, three steps at a time and then wonder why I'm so exhausted and felt like a failure. Things like 
breathing to calm down the nervous system. It's okay not to clean up the entire kitchen all in one go. It's okay to build a habit five minutes a day. Learn how to turn negative thoughts into something more positive and redirect my negative emotions about myself and others. Every day I try to write down three positive things that happened. Oh, I like that. I so I also tune into a YouTube series, uh, Therapy in a Nutshell, and the therapist, Emma McAdams, is a licensed therapist who makes videos to try and help people who need therapy but may not be able to afford it. She has a series about how to process your emotions, and she helps me build tools to process my emotions, like writing out my emotions on the regular. I hate journaling, but it has really helped me better process my feelings. I still have a ways to go with it, but it's already helped. Uh, I've also been teaching myself to cook because I want to change my relationship to food. If I can make healthy food taste awesome, I'm going to eat it. Love it. What if anything uh, have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? Baby steps. Even when I was a baby, I didn't have time for that shit. I went from rolling around on the floor to pulling myself up on the wall and started learning to walk. Fuck crawling. Being told at age 47 that it's okay to take baby steps blew my goddamn mind. It's so basic, so simple. How could I have overlooked it? Thank you for those. Those are are great. And, you know, I think it speaks to the fact that a lot of us, myself included, feel like there's a clock ticking on life, like that 60 minutes clock, and that we're three steps behind everybody else and the universe. We have too much in our life that we don't like and not enough that we like, or at least that's what we tell ourselves. And so we feel like we're just, we're, we're, we can't catch up. And so the idea of taking baby steps seems like, how is that going to ever get me to where I want to be? But you're, you're so right. You're so right. Thank you for, uh, Reminding us of that and say hi to Poopy Butt for me. This is from the love survey filled out by Otto von Gismark. I fucking love you guys. Otto von Gismark. God fucking bless you. Whoever you are. Doesn't say gender. I don't care. Share a thing or things you love. I love the part in The Empire Strikes Back. When Leia senses Luke is in trouble and convinces Chewie and Lando to go back for him. I love waking up without a hangover every day. Sounds like you're a sober person. Uh, I love the sound of a dentist, of a distant train through my open bedroom window at night. I like the sound of a dentist on the other side of my bedroom window at night. Just drilling. Drilling the birds and the squirrels. Uh, I love that first cup of coffee after recovering from a bout of flu. Wow, so you go no coffee during the flu, which probably makes sense, but I don't know if I've ever had a flu bad enough that I didn't at least have a sip of coffee. I love when perfect strangers compliment me on my esoteric t-shirts. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. And I don't know if I mentioned it enough, uh, but how grateful I am for the surveys that you guys fill out. They, it means, I don't want to get all gushy, but they mean so much to me because not only do they make the podcast better, but they help me personally learn more uh, about the world, about myself, 
They remind me shit that sometimes I already know, but I forgot. Uh, this is an awful, awful some moment filled out by squandering through the forest. And they write, when I was 15, I was depressed and severely anorexic. My mom took me to a therapist who I immediately disliked. For starters, his office was at the end of the hall in the basement of a building. No windows. In his waiting room, the, quote, art, unquote, was framed velvet cityscapes with little LED lights in them. The room where we, where we met felt creepily homey. It was set up like someone's den. Lots of books, lamps, and way too much furniture. I'm talking couch, love seat, armchairs, rocking chair, stools, etc. I remember scoffing as soon as I walked in and saying, Oh, I get it. Whatever I choose to sit on is going to tell you something about my psyche. This fucker just creeped me out. But I felt a little bit like I was making it up. He wore two comfy clothes and slippers. He sat on a couch when he talked to me. There was no receptionist and, as I said, no windows. He saw another kid right before me, and every week this therapist would use the bathroom between our two appointments. He'd have to walk past me through the waiting room to get to the bathroom. I'd sit there for what felt like a long time. I felt gross for thinking this, but I imagined he was masturbating in there, like he got some sick pleasure out of these therapy sessions. Then he would come out of the bathroom and shake my hand. I felt physically repulsed. I didn't have that many sessions with this guy. I told my mom he creeped me out. She let me stop seeing him. I was kind of a punk, though, at 15, so I was never really sure in retrospect whether he was actually that awful or if I was just judgmental because of his bad art and freckly bald head. Cut to years later, I'm an adult. This therapist was in the news and not for something good. He'd been arrested and convicted for being a pedophile. He'd been sexually abusing the children who saw him for therapy and been doing it for years. I felt and still feel disgusted. It's bad enough that any adult sexually abuses children, but how does a therapist justify that to himself? At the same time, I also feel sort of vindicated. Not only was snarky, judgmental 15-year-old me absolutely right in my assessment of his character, but my prickliness probably protected me. No way was any therapist going to so much as touch my arm. Trust your gut, kids. Thank you for that, and thank God you you dodged that bullet. Fuck. Yeah, man. There, there, there are bad therapists out there, just like just like any profession. And um, I have never had a nightmare experience with uh, therapists, but I've had a couple of therapists where I was like, eh, I, I do not feel like this person knows what they're doing. But um, fortunately, there's there's. Tons of good ones out there, but every once in a while, I'll stumble across a story like that, and I'm just like, wow. It's like the priest, you know? It's like you are preying on people at their very weakest, and I suppose that is a bigger high to them. That makes them feel more powerful. Anyway, thank you for, for filling that out. Um, this is an email that I got from uh, Andy, and he writes, Greetings, I am Barrister Andy Owen. I am contacting you to assist 
retrieve this huge deposit Mr. Alexander left in the bank, $4.5 million, before it's get confiscated by the bank. I will give you more details once I confirm your positive answers. Many thanks, Barrister Andy Owen. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Barrister uh, Andy Owen. I've never had a... Um, contact with a barrister before. I've seen you in uh, art house movies, uh, usually somewhere at the end where you render a judgment that is either positive or negative and greatly affects the protagonist or antagonist. Uh, but to have you reach out to me, uh, and I assume you're wearing your wig made of rolls of shredded wheat. I've never touched one of those, but I have to assume that that's what it's made out of. And while I have you on the line, I want to know, isn't it time you guys tried another wig style? A perm, maybe 70s, long flowing, I don't know. But in the history of mankind, at least since there's been photography, actually photography and painting, I have never seen somebody actually wear the, have their hair in the shredded wheat rolls. And I think it's kind of, I don't know, you guys are supposed to be about the truth. How about you start getting true with your, uh, start at your scalp and you work your way down, barrister. And I mean that in the most respectful way possible. Uh, This is a very heavy uh, and I'm being serious here, a very heavy shame and secrets survey. It's got some graphic stuff in it, so um, just warning you, this is filled out by a trans man who calls himself Mad Jack. He identifies as asexual. Uh, he is 29. He was raised, he says, in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, super Christian, outwardly normal, secretly abusive, uh, homeschooled until sixth grade, then public school, uh, so awkward social skills. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, once, yes, and I reported it, uh, and yes, and another time I didn't report it. Uh, I was molested by my uncle when I was little, maybe seven to nine years old. He rubbed my genitals and then licked them while on vacation at my grandparents' house. I thought nothing of it at first. But then my oldest brother, three and a half years older, raped and molested me from nine till I was almost 15. The last time he raped me, he had just turned 18. He never knew what my uncle had done until I disclosed the abuse to my parents. My uncle got divorced because he was also molesting his daughter, but later remarried and has another daughter. Uh, My brother was sent to a local college after the disclosure and is now married, has two girls and a third on the way, and lives in another country. Oh, there it is. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole. Um, But that is just... That, that to me, feels like, like when you see a dog loose on a highway and you just feel like, oh my God, this is not good. Um, I became a Marine and started drinking heavily at 21 to cope with the abuse and was raped in a barracks by a member of my platoon after a, quote, friendly, unquote, MMA-style fight uh, gone terribly wrong. 
I get rowdy and like to fight when I'm drunk, so it started as a normal drinking night. He was almost seven feet tall and about 280 pounds of muscle. I was a five foot seven girl and about 150 pounds. I went into therapy briefly. The therapist convinced me I needed to try uh, a normal, healthy sexual relationship if I wanted to move on. I knew someone I thought was a gentleman. We started dating and I had to be drunk to be okay with being touched. We moved on orders to another country. My job changed to become a a detective, so I stopped drinking. Because I stopped drinking, we stopped being intimate, and infidelity is illegal in the military. So even though I would have had no problem with him getting serviced elsewhere, he wouldn't break the rules. So when I hurt my back and was on muscle relaxers, he would help himself to my body while I slept. I'm starting prolonged exposure therapy this week through the VA. I'm a natural avoider, so wish me luck! Exclamation point. Wow. Wow. That is so much stuff. And I just want to fucking high-five you for not giving up. Um, To be willing to trust a mental health professional or support group or whatever it is that you go, wherever you go in the future to help heal. I I just want to, if you're listening, I just want to remind you how fucking brave that is given all that you have been through. Uh, He has been physically abused and emotionally abused. During the abuse from my brother, he would push, pull, and throw me around. He would drag me down the stairs and drag me from room to room naked. He left many bruises and often made me bleed from my genitals. He would bite me, smother me, and strangle me. As for emotional abuse, I was sure I was going to grow up to be a man, but unsure how that was possible. I grew up in a very Christian home, but I was uncomfortable in women's clothes, so every Sunday was a battle with my mom over what to wear. She was so upset about what I was wearing for a family photo one day when I was 12, she yelled, God damn it, why don't you ever dress like a goddamn girl, and then threw her shoes against a wall and took a step toward me. I had a panic panic attack and ran up into the corner on my bed. It took my parents over an hour to calm me down. Wow. Any positive experiences with abusers? They were all family or close friends. And the Marines, your platoon is your family. Fellow Marines are your brothers. I've never liked the saying brotherly love because it means rape to me darkest thoughts. I'm so confused about the boundaries of sex and how it can be a pleasant experience. It has always been painful and traumatic for me. So sex is synonymous with rape to me. Between that and the deeply religious upbringing, I don't know how to engage in a healthy sexual relationship. I watch porn that appears abusive because it seems fake to me that anyone would enjoy it. I'm scared to death of being in a relationship with a woman because I'm scared I may do something they don't want and end up raping them, and I'm scared of men because of what they may do to me again. Uh, Darkest secrets. I'm terrified that one day I will molest a kid. I was never horny as a female, but on testosterone, my body is craving stimulation almost incessantly, and I'm afraid of what I would do if I ever lost my sobriety and was tempted. 
I haven't drank in years, and I only take my meds as prescribed, but in the back of my mind, this fear is always nagging me. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm not sure. Given my history, even a seemingly consensual encounter can end badly for me because certain positions and things make me dissociate and I can't speak during the encounter, so a safe word wouldn't work. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? There's a few men I'd have some choice words for, but unfortunately, words can't kill. What, if anything, do you wish for? Bolts of lightning? A well-timed bus and a crosswalk or other unfortunate demise for my uncle and brother. Have you shared these things with others? I've overshared with so many people, trying to purge it out of my system, but it's still there and I still hate talking about it. How do you feel after writing these things down? About the same. I type it up in online journals and try to write a good statement to one day show police, but it feels incomplete. Words just can't express the level of violation and violence I've endured. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It may never fully go away or get out of your head, but it does get better. Dogs and cats can be comforting. Hold a baby and rock it to sleep. Find the little joys in life and make it your mission to seek them out. Thank you so much for that. And, and, uh, such great wisdom uh, about the, the, the little things. That seems to be the theme of, uh, of the good advice I'm getting from you guys. Just remember, go back to the little things. Sometimes just like a 20-minute nap will change my, <laughs> change my thinking from, you know, it's all going to be a shit show until the day I die. And then 20-minute nap, I wake up. I'm like, oh, you know what? I feel like playing hockey or going out in the shop. And then finally, these are some loves filled out by a person who calls themselves Now in Zen. And they write, I love seeing the first cardinal in spring. I love the smell of rain. I love it when little kiddos smile and wave at folks with good vibes that they don't know. I love the smell of puppy breath, fresh bread in that little town in Mexico where they make the best vanilla extract. I love the feeling of my wet hair falling across my shoulders and down my back as I pull the towel off my head after a shower that cleaned my body, mind, and soul. I love giving in to my vices orange sherbet vanilla ice cream, ice cold Coke from a soda fountain, Haribo gummy bears without shooting myself up, without shooting all over myself. Uh, I love the picture of my daddy holding me when I was a newborn. His whole body reflects his pride in being the father of this baby girl. I love hearing my grandgirls yelling na-na before I can even make it to the door when I visit. I love getting a text from one of my kiddos saying, I really need a mom hug. And of course, I love those hugs. I love reflecting on how far I've come, how much I've healed, how I've faced the challenges and scaled the walls that once held me prisoner. I love to listen to my clients share their history. I can't help but smile inside. I hear their quote, fight, unquote, and I believe in them as I believe in myself. And I love that I finally found 
and inspiring, positive, and cool as fuck best friend. And she is me. Wow, those are great. Those are great. I especially love the one that your kids call you up and say that they that they need a mom hug. That is so that is so beautiful for you know for those of us that were raised by uh, parents that didn't really have that instinct or didn't uh, ever do the work to learn how to how to do those things. Uh, when I hear that there are kids who are getting that uh, that feeling that the you know that there are safe places in the world, um, people that they can depend on uh just gives me the warm fuzzies and just love it i love it and gracie loves it she just winked at you guys i hope you guys enjoyed this episode and if you're out there and you're uh you're feeling stuck you're not you're not you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.